The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. And this morning I want to continue our study on the delusion of the devil. So I welcome you to another Sunday morning in which we will talk about Satan. And last week I told you that we are not the church of Satan. And so if the only uh, services that you have attended are the last four, don't be confused. We're not the church of Satan. We are followers of Jesus Christ and We're discussing Satan because, as I said a while ago in the prayer, uh, things that we have to talk about are sometimes unpleasant, but they are in the Word of God. They are taught, and we are to teach these things to the congregation of God's people. So we're discussing the devil because he is the one who has deceived the entire world about the true God. He works every single day to pervert the truth of the gospel of Christ. Now, in Romans chapter 1, you remember there that Paul spoke and he said that men had changed the glory of the incorruptible God into, or he made him like a corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying to us is that men worship goofy things. We worship goofy things from, man will worship things from himself to bugs. Satan is so good at his deception that he is able to, he's able to make people think that things that they make with their own hands are able to help them or to hurt them. He's able to convince people that we came from creeping, crawling things and from the highest levels in our university, uh, people's, universities, people believe that, that life is just an accident. The universe is just an accident. And people are so deceived that they believe that the universe is the result of the explosion of a dot, that the Big Bang is what caused galaxies and supernovas and constellations and comets and the sun and the moon and then microbes and then man. And so Satan is able to trick people into believing the weirdest things. Uh, And these things people will swear by, even though they are the same things that scream that they are absolute fools. They're fools for believing them. And that's what Satan is able to do. He's able to fool people and to make fools out of people. Now, here in this text of Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul warns us about tricks of the devil, how he gets people to believe the wrong kinds of things. And so Paul says here in verse number 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. He tells us that the devil has many devices. These are wiles that he speaks of in verse number 11. There are myriads of these devices that he uses, and they work. You will believe them. You will embrace what the devil says because he lies, and and you are ready to embrace that because of that sinful nature that you have in you, uh, even though these things that the devil tells you will destroy your soul. Scripture says that Satan is able to take people captive at his will. He is fully capable to deceive you any time that he wants. And you don't have any power against him. 
Because everything that you are fits into everything that he is, just like a hand fits into a glove. Now today I want to switch the emphasis of the message. In the previous messages I have spoke of ways that Satan is able to deceive. We've discussed Satan's origin. We've talked about the Bible's descriptions of him. And very quickly let me add this, that the Bible is the only place that you're going to find true information about the devil. Now, there are many other places that you can go. People write books all of the time, and you can read those kinds of things, but those don't have the right information about the devil unless they're based upon the Word of God. If they are expositions of the Word of God, then yes. But just because someone wrote something about the devil does not make it true because the devil uses those kinds of things to deceive people about who he truly is. And we've looked at Satan's activities, we've talked about how crafty that he is, how cunning he is, how many methods that he uses. We've discussed false prophets that tell Satan's lies, and we've talked about the churches in which they preach. And our world is full of them, our country is full of them. And one of Satan's biggest lies is to tell you that all churches are the same, basically the same. It really doesn't matter which church that you go to. And then I spoke of the vast amounts of help that Satan has. Uh, he can't be in more than one place at one time, but he has so much help that he appears to be in every place at every time. Everybody in this entire world, in some way or another, has been affected by Satan and by his helpers. But today I want to switch from that information to talk more about what Satan does to himself. Now, he deludes men and women... But the greatest deception that Satan has is that one that he has perpetrated upon himself, that he believes that he can win. He believes that he can win this spiritual battle that we have read about here in Ephesians chapter 6. He does believe that he will defeat God and the armies of heaven. And he believes that one day he will sit on God's throne, he will seize power in heaven, and all will be subject to him. He will cast God out and that's the devil's greatest deception. He has deceived himself into thinking that he can win. Now, in the following sermons uh, on this, on the devil, we're going to talk about Satan's deception of himself, the greatest of all deceptions. In his uncommon wisdom, even though he has uncommon wisdom, his greatest deception is into thinking that he can win. So in the following sermons, what I'm going to talk to you about it's not Satan's activities so much, but I want to talk to you about Satan's destruction. We'll talk about Satan's destruction over these next few weeks. Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bible, if you would, to Revelation chapter 12. And here the Bible describes the beginning of the end of Satan. God intends to end his tyrannical end. Satan is at the mercy of God's discretion. He's like a pit bull that's tied to a post. He has a leash on him, and he can go only as far as God allows. And then God's going to rein him in, and God will take care of him forever. Now, the world is soiled with the results of Satan's evil works. But that's not permanent. Satan ruined God's paradise when he tempted Adam, and Adam fell. And God cursed the world because of that fall and because of sin. But God does not intend for the world to stay that way. He is going to make a change he intends to remove sin from his universe. And the place that he's going to start is by getting rid of Satan, the one who caused the problem. Now, the scripture says that Christ was manifested to us, or he came to us. He came to the world to destroy the works of the devil. And that is exactly what he plans to do. 
Now, if you look in Revelation chapter 12, verse number 7, by now you recognize these verses because we've referred to them two or three times in our study. But now we're going to look at them in just a little bit different way as we talk about Satan's destruction. I want to dwell on that. So in verse number 7 it says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Those verses have a twofold application. First of all, they are a look into the distant past, and then they're also a look into the future. In the past, Satan fell. He lost his place as God's anointed cherub. Probably he was the chief angel among all of the angels. But because of his pride and his rebellion, he lost that special place of recognition. However, it's apparent that when he fell, that God did not immediately cut off all of his access to heaven. And so for these past thousands of years, Satan has been able to enter into heaven to appear before God, and there he accuses God's people. Now, we learned that when we read Job chapter 1, that Satan appeared before God to make accusations against this very righteous man named Job. And through the centuries, Satan has continued to do that. And we see there in Revelation 12, verse number 10, that Satan accuses that he's always busy at that work. And when you get a chance, you might look up another scripture, Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and there you'll see Satan standing in the presence of God, making accusations against God's high priest in Israel. Now that's a brazen activity that Satan has been involved with, and it didn't end in the Old Testament, it didn't end in the New Testament times, but that's something that goes on today. And that's another testimony to Satan's strong delusion of himself that he thinks that he has the right to come into God's presence, to have access to heaven, and tell more lies about us. Now, although uh, Satan makes charges against us, the good news is that we know we have a great high priest, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he stands there also to defend us against all charges that are made against his people, and he pleads the blood that he shed for us, for our righteousness, and therefore the devil is not able to make his accusations against the children of God stick. But at some point, God's going to tire of Satan's insolence, and one day he's going to cast him out completely. This is what we read about in Revelation chapter 12. There's a day coming when God will say no more and he'll prepare the world for its final destruction and then he'll make all things new. And he does that by starting with Satan. First, he's going to cast him out of heaven, never to return there, and then he'll throw him down to the earth where his activities will be confined to this sphere of operation. 
Now, for seven years, what the devil will do is to concentrate his efforts against God's people and especially against the nation of Israel. Uh, Satan hates Israel worse than all the nations of the world because that's the nation through which Christ came. And what Satan wants to do is to destroy God's promise of his future coming kingdom to the earth. And so he works very hard during that seven years to destroy God's people. And if you go on reading in chapter 12, if you want to get a chance to finish that out later, there you find Satan persecuting a woman. And that woman stands for Israel, represents Israel. And that's because Israel is the one that gave birth to the Messiah. Now, you can still see that kind of hatred today as uh, Satan incites people against the nation of Israel. And so you have, it seems like, all the world that stands against Uh, the nation of Israel, and that small little sliver of land that they have, people are trying to take that away from them. So Satan wants to destroy the entire nation of Israel. That's his goal. I'd like to spend time describing to you the tribulation, but that's a subject for another time. And instead, I'd like you to turn now to Revelation chapter 20. And this is at the end of those seven years and just before Christ begins his kingdom on the earth. Now, during the kingdom age, God intends that he's going to rule the world without any interference from Satan. So he'll not destroy Satan at the beginning of the kingdom. Instead, he has something else in store for him, as we read here in verses 1 and 2. God is going to do something with Satan during the time of his kingdom. Verse number 1 says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now today what I want to talk to you about, we'll concentrate here today, the placement of Satan in prison. I want you to pay attention to this phrase in verse number 2, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. If you ever wonder why we refer to Christ's kingdom as the millennial reign or as the millennial kingdom, it comes from this phrase. This is the only place in the Bible where the length of the kingdom is stated. A millennium is a thousand years, and six times here, from verses 2 to verse number 7, the length of this is given as 1,000 years. And I think that's convincing proof to us that the kingdom will last how long? 1,000 years. That seems to be clear. It seems strange that you could miss that, but many do. In fact, the prevailing opinion is that there's not going to be a literal kingdom on the earth at all. And then there are others who say there will be a kingdom, but the time of the kingdom is indefinite. But it seems to me that six times in seven verses ought to be enough to tell us how long the kingdom is going to last. And so for 1,000 years, Christ is going to rule the earth in perfect peace and righteousness. And in order for that to happen... Satan can't be here. Satan has to be bound. He has to be moved out of the way so that Christ can reign in that righteousness. And Satan is no longer left free to go about the earth, walking up and down it, as he described what he does. And he walks about as that roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So God has to move him out of the way. Satan's ability to incite evil has to be stopped, and God will do that. His reign as the prince and power of the air is going to be stopped as he's placed in this prison for a thousand years. Now, there are other plans for him after the thousand years are over. We'll talk about that at a later time when we get to the final, final destruction of Satan. But here's where it begins. 
What is Satan doing? What happens to him during the time of the millennial kingdom? Well, according to this text, there's someone that's more powerful than him that's going to control him. And I remind you of all the creatures that God made. Satan is probably the most powerful of all. And yet he's still a creature. God still controls him. As powerful as he is, he is no match at all for God. And so when the time comes, it will be no trouble for God to empower another angel, another more powerful angel than him who has the strength to bind him. And so operating under the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, there is an angel that is dispatched from heaven, and he has the power to take hold of Satan and put him in this prison. Verse number 2 says, And he laid hold on that dragon, the old serpent which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now just for a minute or two, I want to divert your attention away from Satan to talk about this mighty angel that will control him. So just keep your finger there in chapter 20. Turn back a few pages to chapter 10. And then let's look at verse number 1 and the description of a very special angel. Revelation chapter 10, in verse number 1. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Now, because of those descriptions, there are many people who believe that this angel is Christ. And... The Bible does refer to Christ sometimes as an angel. Now, that doesn't mean a created angel. Angel is simply a word that just means messenger. And so sometimes Christ is referred to as an angel. He is a messenger. In Revelation chapters 1 and 2, the 2 and 3 rather, the pastors of churches are referred to as angels. That gives you a hint as to why I'm so holy and good-looking. It's because I am an angel. I'm a messenger of God. Uh, But I don't think that the angel spoken of here is Jesus. I think that most likely this is Michael, the archangel. And if there is a uh, counterpart to Lucifer in the order of angels, I believe that it would be Michael. And Satan and Michael have a long history with each other. Jude described how that Satan and Michael argued over the body of Moses. We discussed that argument just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Some people believe that Satan wanted to get hold of the body of Moses in order to make an idol of it, that he wanted to tempt Israel to sin by making a shrine to Moses. And Israel was prone to do that, weren't they? I mean, they were prone to go into idolatry. They would worship different things. You might remember that Moses made the serpent of brass in the wilderness and told people to look to it and they would live. Well, about five or six hundred years after that, in Hezekiah's time, the people had hung on to that serpent of brass and they'd made it an idol to worship. Hezekiah had to get rid of it during his time because Israel was prone to worship it. So it may be that God thought or knew that this is what Satan's plan was. And so he hid the body of Moses. He didn't want Israel to make a shrine to it. He didn't want Israel to come and worship at the place where the body of Moses lay. Uh, that's what Islam does with uh, Muhammad. They worship the, go to the grave of Muhammad. Well, God didn't want that for his people. There is no idolatry in God's kingdom. And so the history of Michael and Satan is in that story, but it goes on. There's also that passage in Daniel chapter 10 that we looked at where... 
there was an evil angel that was sent by Satan to hinder one of God's angels who had a message to deliver to Daniel. And that angel was uh, hindered, hindered the, the good angel from God for 21 days, the Scripture says. And so Michael came to overcome that angel so that the message could be delivered. And then, of course, in the passage that we just read in Revelation chapter 12, there we see Michael and uh, Lucifer fighting, Michael and Lucifer, uh, Satan fighting, and Michael conquers him and casts him down to the earth. So I think that Michael is a very good candidate to bind Satan. He has the power to do it, and their history together uh, seems to me to indicate that Michael is the one who takes this chain and shackles Satan and throws him into prison. Now, as I describe these things, you're very much aware that we're, what we're talking about here are things that happen in the supernatural world. And people get very interested in angels. People want to know more about angels. They are supernatural, so that, that that's piques our interest. We're, we, we want to know about the supernatural. So you have the New Age movement today, for instance, and they, have, uh, they pay significant attention to angels. Roman Catholicism has a theology of angels. Down the street from my house, there is a Vietnamese Catholic church, and there is an idol out front, an idol of what I think is an angel that stands there. And I don't know if they believe that that idol has protection over the church, but that's the very kind of thing that Satan uses to confuse people. And I need to warn you about this, that just as there is no place to learn about Satan but the Bible, there is no place that you can learn about angels but the Bible. You have to find something that's written based on the Bible, the truth of Scripture, in order to know anything at all about angels. So if somebody tells you things about angels, unless they've got a chapter and a verse to point to, don't believe it. Don't accept any of that. The truth of all of these things that happen in the supernatural comes only from the Word of God. Now let's take a, another look uh, at Satan's binding. What is this prison where this angel puts him? Well, verse number 1 of the text calls it a bottomless pit. A bottomless pit. Now, in uh, Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, uh, that's where I'm from. Not from Mammoth Cave. I wasn't born there, but I was born in Kentucky. In Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, there is this huge cylindrical hole that goes straight down. And the guide will take you through the cave, and one of the things they do is drop a torch down into that hole, and you never see it hit the bottom. And they call that the bottomless pit. Now, I don't know where the bottom of that pit is, but like most Kentuckians, we believe that the bottom of the bottomless pit must be somewhere in Tennessee, surely. But uh, maybe that, I don't think so. Uh, but that's not the bottomless pit. And Tennessee is not the bottomless pit. But whatever that pit is, it, it's a lockdown place from which nothing escapes. There is an angel over it, and this angel has a key. And, of course, that's a metaphor. It means that he has power over it. Only this angel can let anyone in or out of that bottomless pit. What is that place? Well, the King James Version calls it the bottomless pit, but the word is actually translated from the same word as which we get abyss. In Luke 8:31, Jesus cast demons out of the uh, Gadaran maniac, and those demons begged him not to cast them into the deep. And that word deep in that scripture is the same as we find here. It's the word abyss. 
And then there's an interesting thing, too, that in that same story, that those demons spoke to Jesus, and they said, Did you come to torment us before the time? And they knew that there was coming a time of judgment for them, and they knew that being put into the bottomless pit was a terrible place to be, and they didn't want to go there, so they didn't want to mess with Jesus early on this. They said, Cast us out someplace else. You remember he cast them into the pigs that were on the hillside. Well, they didn't want to go into the bottomless pit. That's the abyss and a terrible place. Now, let me give you just a little bit more insight. Back at the time that Lucifer fell, there were other angels that joined him in the rebellion. There in chapter 12, verse number 4, we have the indication that one-third of heaven's angels joined Lucifer in that rebellion. And some of those angels did not escape God's immediate judgment. Now, God didn't immediately judge Satan and some of the angels, but some of them he did. Some of them at that time he placed in to the bottomless pit in order to await final judgment. And then they're going to be taken out of there and thrown into the lake of fire. Now, Peter describes this, Second Peter chapter 2, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Now, I think that what Peter's describing there is what happened at the initial rebellion. And interestingly, if you look at that word hell in, the, in that part of Scripture, that is not the common word that we see for hell. But rather, that's a word that refers to the abyss, also indicated by the word Hades. But the Greek word here is the word Tartarus. And in Greek mythology, that referred to the underworld where fallen gods were placed. Jude also made a reference to this place. In Jude verse 6, some of the angels that fell with Satan are said to be in the abyss, and they have been there since the time of their rebellion. Now, God could have put all of them there if he wanted, but he didn't. He had a purpose for them, and actually those angels, those evil angels, these demons that have been put into the bottomless pit are going to be brought out of there for a special purpose during the time of the tribulation. And they're going to exalt God whether they want to or not. I know they're not going to do it willingly, but God is going to use them. Now, to, to just have you think a little bit more about these angels in the abyss and how that God has full control over them, God's going to use them in that very strange way, uh, a frightening way. Now, let, let's turn over to, to uh, chapter 9 in verse number 1. A few weeks ago, we read this, and I said, well, we're going to come back to it in this message, and we're going to talk about it some more. Uh, so if you'll look at Revelation chapter 9, in verse number 1, this is during the time of the tribulation. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there rose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Then verse number 7. And the shapes of the locusts. Now these locusts are demons. We could say the shapes of these demons were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were as it were crowns like gold. And their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had their tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them 
which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. Now just quickly, I don't think that refers to the same angel we're talking about in chapter 10. But this is a, an evil angel, Abaddon or Apollyon. Now in verses 1 and 2, you can see these demons are in the bottomless pit. Now they're kept there, and what God did was to strip them of all the beauty that they had. These are angels that were created back at the very beginning, and they were beautiful. They glorified God. But it appears that God had stripped them of all of that beauty and made them to be horrible creatures. And he gives the description of them here. I remember when I was young that we would look at verse number 8 where it says these uh, demons had faces like men and they had hair like women. And we were convinced this has to be talking about rock musicians. Surely that's what it's talking about. And I remind you today that men who men that are, are supposed to be men and women are women and men are not to have the hair of women. I'll just throw that in there. You don't hear that too much. Men are not supposed to have the hair of women. That's a demon thing to do, by the way, folks. As a matter of fact, I'm going to I'm going to approach that just a little bit from the book of Deuteronomy in in a, in, a, in a while, a couple of three weeks or so, and we'll take a look at Deuteronomy and see what the Bible has to say about cross dressing about look men looking like women and women looking like men. But in any case, God is going to uh, take these hideous creatures uh, out of that torment of hell and use them against the followers of the Antichrist. Now, isn't that a very strange twist? When Jesus was accused of using the power of Satan to cast out Satan, Jesus said, well, how foolish is that? How, how foolish is that? If Satan divides himself, his kingdom can't stand. But here you see Jesus doing that very thing. He divides Satan's kingdom, and Satan's angels are used to fight against Satan. And when his kingdom is divided, it can't stand. And so these evil angels are brought out of the abyss, and they are made to be torturers. They hate men so much, they torture them, and they're torturing not God's people, but the followers of the Antichrist. God's preserving his own people. These are torturing followers of the Antichrist. That shows you that Satan hates even his own followers. He's not the friend of anybody. And these angels that have been in the abyss for so long, they've got this pent-up anger because of the suffering that they've gone through and the torture. They're glad to get out of that place, and they want to tear up Jack. And so that's what they do. And when God's through with them, what does God do? He just binds them back up, throws them in the bottomless pit again, and then waits for their final judgment. Now, before we end our study today, I do want to talk to you about another interesting point concerning angels in the abyss. This is a, a question that pops up from time to time. Uh, usually when we have someone, uh, at some time or another, new folks that come to Berean will ask this question, and it's a good one because uh, there's some things that are said about this. And uh, remember this, that every demon in the world, all these demons are fallen angels. Some were put into the abyss at the beginning, as I told you, some are going to be put into the abyss, the rest of them, at the time of Revelation chapter 20. But was there a time when some of these angels were loose for a while and then they were put into the abyss? Well, some people think so. And they believe that they were put there because they committed a very peculiar, special sin. And they believe that both Peter and Jude are referencing that special sin that they committed, and they are a very special group of offenders. So what is the evil that these evil angels did? That's the problem that we find in Genesis chapter 6. Now let's turn there, if you would, 
and we're going to try to clear up just a little bit of confusion about this passage. And while you're looking for Genesis 6, the reason I bring all this up is just to show you all of the help that Satan has and how horrible that Satan can be in his destruction of humans. Now, Satan doesn't work alone, and so in order for God to rule the world in perfect righteousness, all of this evil has to be dealt with. These evil angels can't be left free to roam the earth, and so Revelation 20 is the end of all of them. Now, in Genesis chapter 6, this is at the time before Noah built the ark. And, of course, that would be before God sent the flood. And in the generations from Adam to Noah, the wickedness of the world had become so great that God was not going to stand it any longer. And so God determined that he would destroy man from the earth. Well, was there something that caused more extreme wickedness than had ever been seen before and then caused God to do something that he'd never done before? Many people believe so. That's the theory of Genesis 6. Verse number 1. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years." There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Now, in verse number 2, you see the phrase, sons of God. Is that familiar? We saw that, didn't we, in the story about Job. It was the sons of God who came to appear before God. Satan came with them. And some take that phrase to mean, even here, that it means angels. Now, the theory is, then, that evil angels were trying to do all that they could to corrupt the human race in greater ways than they'd ever been able to before. And so these angels came to earth, and they had relations with women. They came to the daughters of men, and in verse number 2, they had sexual relations with them, and out of this union became or came a race of half-men and half-angels. And these were superhumans, and they were giants. Now, in the, in the mythology of ancient cultures, there are stories that are like this, where the gods married women, and their offspring were demigods. Hercules was a demigod. Perseus was a demigod. Helen of Troy was a demigod. That's one parent who is a god, one parent that is a human. And so the theory is that the mythology of the Greeks and Romans and of others has some basis in fact. And what it is is just retelling what happened here in another way of what happened in Genesis chapter 6. Well, when this weird race of half-humans and half-angels were born, the ability to corrupt was phenomenal. They were the most wicked of all. And at the end of verse number 4, it says, They bear children to them, the same being mighty men which were of old, men of renown. That phrase is also used in chapter 11, speaking of Nimrod. Nimrod was called a mighty man, and Nimrod was the one who began the kingdom of Babylon. And Babylon in Scripture always refers to the kingdom of Satan. Now, the theory goes that the major reason that God sent the flood was because of this. It was to get rid of this abnormal race of half-angels, half-men, and all that they had corrupted. And so they were very morally corrupt. And they also had this otherworldly thing about them that this was opposed to God's created order. God never intended that something like this could happen. 
Now, what did God do then with these evil angels that perforated such a horrible perversion? Well, what he did was he sent them to the abyss. And so they were put there before Revelation chapter 20. And these are the ones that he calls up out of the pit to do the damage that you find in Revelation chapter 9. Well, the next obvious question for us is, is that possible? Could that actually happen? Is it possible for angels to have relations with women? Well, we know that angels often appeared as men. And by the way, there was no angel that ever appeared as a woman. None of them ever appeared as little baby cupids either. They always appear as men. And when, when taking human form, they appear as men. But does that mean that they have all the characteristics of men? Well, the Bible doesn't give us any indication that it could happen. Angels were not created to be like men. Some people ask, well, things like this. Did Adam have a navel? That's a good question. But I'm sure of this, that there's not a mixed little breed of uh, half angels and half men that have navels, unless, of course, they're your children. That might be true, but, but not according to the Bible. Jesus was asked a question about these kinds of things. I mean, he was asked a question about sex in the afterlife. And there are many religions who believe that, don't they? They, they believe, you know, heaven's, heaven's glorified sex is one of the things that they think about that. So they asked Jesus about sex in the afterlife. The Sadducees came to him and asked him a question about it. Now, they ask a question about marriage, but really it comes back to this central issue. They asked him a question about marriage. They didn't believe in the resurrection, so they tried to fool Jesus on the issue of marriage. And so they described to him a story. Uh, I think that it was a story they made up. It could have been a true story. It could have actually happened. But there was a, they said there was a woman who had seven husbands, and all of them died. And so they asked Jesus, which of these men will be her husband in the resurrection? Which one of them will be able to claim her? In other words, which one is going to be able to have it with her when he gets to heaven? Well, probably none of them, because a woman was such bad luck, nobody would want to have anything to do with her. But for sure, we know this for sure, that Jesus was not a Mormon, because he would have said then, well, they can all have her. And a dozen more besides, if they want. And then the Muslims would join in and they would say, and 40 versions too, let's put them in there as well. But Jesus teaches there, there is no such thing as sex in heaven. He said, for in the resurrection they neither marry, nor are they given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Now that's a statement that's tantamount to saying there is no sex in heaven. He said they're going to be like, people will be like the angels of God in heaven. And so how are the angels? Well, angels don't marry. Angels do not have sex. Now, I think it's clear from this response that angels could never marry women, and thus they never have children. Angels do not procreate. There are no daddy angels with little baby angels, half baby angels, half human angels. So I don't believe that Genesis 6 has anything at all to do with fallen angels having sex with women. Fallen angels cannot create a new race. They can't do that. Now, in this case, I think what we're looking at is that sons of God refers to the godly line of Seth. And who came from the godly line of Seth? Well, yes, but ultimately, who came from the godly line of Seth? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came from the line of Seth. Now, here are men that are perverting that godly line. And so I think that what God did was he was going to preserve the godly line by getting rid of all of these evil men that had been participating in all these... Uh, the sons of God married these w women that were wicked, and they were perverting that godly race. And so God said, well, I can't have that. 
And so he destroyed the world with the flood and he preserved the human race through Noah, who is a son of Seth. And through him came the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, by the time that this was over, after 120 years, the world was so wicked that there's only that one family left. That's Noah his fa- and his family. God had given the rest time to repent, and they wouldn't. And so God destroyed the world with the flood. Now, let me swing the discussion back to Satan and his destruction. This should be a very stark reminder to us of what God intends to do. God, God promised that he was never going to destroy the world again with a flood. And he gave a rainbow in the sky to show us that he wouldn't do it. That was a covenant that God gave. But you know what Satan has done with God's covenant? He's perverted the sign, hasn't he? Who would ever believe that God's covenant, God's rainbow, would be used to represent homosexual lifestyle, homosexual approval of homosexual uh, things that they do? Who would ever think that God would use that sign to approve what he destroyed two cities on earth for, for their perversion. And that perversion has been the downfall of civilizations. Now, does that show you what Satan's capable of? What would Satan do if he was allowed in God's kingdom? Nothing different than he's ever done. And so God's kingdom would be filled with the same kinds of things, same kinds of things that you see in the world today. So what's God going to do? Lock Satan up. Tie him down. Chain him there in the bottomless pit so he can't do any damage for the time of the length of the kingdom. That's going to be a wonderful time. Now, the abyss is not yet the end of Satan. This is the first phase of his destruction. There's more that's going to come. God has a plan, and Satan has one more act of destruction that's left in him. And I'll describe to you why that he's left to do this one act, and we'll do that at a later time. And then in just a couple of weeks, we're going to have an interlude where we talk about, this is on Christmas, our Christmas service, where we talk about Christ's kingdom on the earth and what that kingdom's going to be like if there is no Satan. Can you imagine what the world would be like if there is no influence from Satan? And when the righteousness of God is ruling over the entire earth, that's what we're going to talk about at Christmas time. He was born to be a king of this kingdom. And so we'll take a look at that. So let me tell you one more thing before I end today. The way to get rid of sin is to get rid of sinners and to get rid of Satan who incites people to sin. Jesus is going to do that. And no matter how much that Satan has deluded himself, you don't have to be caught in his delusion. You don't have to believe what Satan says. And we don't have to wait till the very end to be rid of sin. At least the consequences of it. We don't have to wait till the end comes to be rid of it. You can be rid of it right now. How can you be rid of it? Believe in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ. Turn to him in faith, and he will deliver you from the sin that will condemn you. And we, none of us, want to be caught up in Satan's destruction. It is Jesus Christ who is the real ruler of heaven and earth. He rules over all of the creation. And he will save you, and he will save you now. Now, I hope that you've already trusted in him. And if you do, rejoice in the victory that you already have through Jesus Christ. The world is conquered by faith in Jesus Christ. Remember that. Though we have been talking so much about Satan, remember this. Jesus Christ is the one in control, and he controls Satan. And it's going to be a wonderful time when we come to that millennial kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...
time we've had in your word today. And Lord, these are subjects that we don't have, uh, don't take a lot of time in other sermons to look into, but it's in the word of God. We do need to teach it and people ask questions about it and they wonder. So we'll take time to explain God's word. But we do pray that you'd bless your people today and help us to uh, always keep in our minds that, Lord, you are the sovereign God, that you are in control of all. We need not fear because you do control everything. And I do pray, Lord, that for those who haven't recognized that authority, that are still making themselves God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, we do pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to truth and they would come and follow you and be saved and be with you in your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Just bless us as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.